0: ghost stories and to kick things off this week I need to say thank you to some of our newest Patreon subscribers I would like to thank Stacey Joe Scott Laura McLaughlin Maria Neves-Stevens Alpha Big Bad Wolf NorCal Lover Terry Marie Harrison Impulse Engine Jennifer Pamela Zehe Sam Hill Rebecca Westervelt Kyler Race Jade Townsend Genevieve Hager, Charlie Madley, Dana, Wendy Kent, Jenny, Kelly Johnson, and Kayla. Thank you so much for subscribing to the Patreon. I love you and appreciate you every single day. And our film review this week, our film review is The Silent Twins. The Silent Twins was released in 2022. It has 5.9 out of 10 on IMDb and 69% on Rotten Tomatoes. Twins June and Jennifer Gibbons struggle to remain together in an infamous psychiatric hospital. Now, just to say before we start this film review, this film is not a horror film, but we did an episode called The Silent Twins years and years and years ago when the podcast first started. And when this film came out in 2022, I thought it would be remiss not to do a film review of this film, considering there was a whole episode dedicated to The Silent Twins. And The Silent Twins is actually one of the few episodes that I kind of weirdly regret doing. Because even though the story is, I mean, it's such a strange story. It's almost an uncanny story. It almost doesn't feel like a real story. It is a story of something psychological, something psychiatric that happened to these two women. And I'm not entirely convinced that I should have included it in a paranormal podcast. However, let's get into the likes and dislikes of this film. So in my likes column, the first thing I wrote down was, it's kind of exactly what I imagined them and their story to be like. So if you're not totally familiar with the story of Jennifer and June Gibbons, so they were a set of identical twins that moved to Wales from Barbados in the 1960s with their family. They were identical twins. They were the only black family in their area, which I think is very important because their experience must have been at times very difficult. They didn't speak for a really long time and developed their own language to speak to each other. And they only spoke to each other for a really long time. There is a name for that when twins like invent their own language. And apparently it is quite common for twins to do that. They then um, would mimic each other's movements. They would only do what the other one would do. They were incredibly controlling of each other and became, as they got older, very violent towards each other. One tried to kill the other. Like numerous times, or they tried to kill each other numerous times. They would end up going to Broadmoor, which was an infamous psychiatric hospital in England. They were sent to Broadmoor because they had been engaging in arson attacks and various other criminal activities. They were prolific writers, they wrote a lot, and um, basically, they had come to this agreement that if one of the twins died, the other one would speak normally. And live a normal life. And they kind of became convinced that the only way for them both to survive. Was for one of them to die, if that makes sense. And really bizarrely, Jennifer was the one who agreed that she she needed to die. And she did die. And it, it's never quite been established as to how she died. She died of a um, sudden inflammation in her heart. And it's it's a very strange story. It's it's uh, It's just so, so bizarre. And the film, I feel like, was exactly as I imagined the twins to be and sort of weirdly what I imagined their life to be like. And it kind of surprised me how true to life the story seemed to be based on what I know of the twins and what is kind of publicly known of the twins. I like that it didn't turn them into a freak show. It didn't turn them into something to kind of laugh at or point at or be horrified by. It was very clear in the film that they were two women that were completely wrapped up in each other and that they were living in this toxic relationship and the focus was on the complexity of their relationship and how strange and difficult and challenging and codependent their relationship was. And I thought that that was portrayed really well. Um, The songs that are in the movie, interestingly, are all based on the twins' writing. And while the film, like, it's not necessarily a horror film, it's not a scary film, there are moments in the film, sequences that are inspired by and based on the writings of the two girls. So there are these really strange and creepy animations throughout. And those animations were taken from the twins' diaries and the stories and books that they wrote, And they are bizarre and strange and at times kind of uncomfortable. In regards to dislikes, it's kind of a difficult one because I didn't really have dislikes as such. More so, it just wasn't an easy watch. Their relationship felt genuinely harrowing. Those toxic relationships, they do exist and... The reality of those toxic relationships, whether it's siblings, whether it's, you know, couples in a sexual relationship or a a love relationship or friendships or whatever it is, it's really difficult to watch those toxic relationships play out on screen. I do think that if you're not familiar with the story of the silent twins, and I think that if you watched it with no prior knowledge of their story, what happened with them, you might struggle. Because what the film doesn't really do is contextualise these twins very well. You don't really understand a context for their lives and therefore get a deeper understanding of their behaviour. You sort of follow along their story with them. And there are moments where you see them in school. You see them becoming catatonic in school when they're separated and how difficult their school lives were and how you know other children bullied them etc but only in these brief snippets so you don't really get an understanding of the world that they lived in and i thought maybe they tried to squeeze too much into the time of the film and i and i really do feel like we we could have as an audience benefited more from understanding the world that the twins actually lived in i think as somebody who knows the story very well i understood the film but if i didn't know the story as well as i do I wouldn't have had a clue what was going on. I think in their real lives, the twins decided that they were going to be writers and they loved writing and they wanted to be famous writers. But in order to do that, they needed to experience life. And therefore, they decide to start taking drugs. They decide to go and meet boys. They decide that they're going to have sexual relationships because they needed to have those real world experiences in order to become better writers. That's kind of explored in the film, but not nearly enough. Like, at one point in the film, all of a sudden the girls decide they're going to become writers, but there isn't that much of a reference to them writing before that, so it seems to come a little bit out of the blue. I think because it's such a complex psychological story, that they probably struggled to find a way to fit the story in in a way that fit the two hour time frame for a film. But overall, I think if you know the story of the Silent Twins, it's worth a watch. I think if you don't know the story of the Silent Twins, it is worth researching Jennifer and June Gibbons beforehand so that you have a context for the actual film that you're watching. All in all, I thought about giving it four stars, but I think the lack of context is kind of important. So I'm going to give it three stars. So that's three stars for the Silent Twins. Which brings us to our story this week. Now, lovely people who are listening to the podcast. I'm going to go into teacher mode for a second. If you are listening to this and it is on or before Tuesday the 16th of May 2023, I want you to have a think about any questions you might have about about this story, any questions that you might want to be answered and think about them while you're listening. It might even be helpful to write them down. The reason I say that is that today's story comes from a book called The Boy They Tried to Hide by Shane Dunphy. Now, this book was recommended to me by Adam and Dulce from the Weekly Creep podcast. And Shane is coming on the podcast next week. So I am recording an interview with him next week. And I said to him that I would quite like if people could submit their questions. So rather than have a debrief of the story afterwards, this week I'm going to ask you to send me in your questions about the story to podcast at gmail.com. If you are listening to this episode on Patreon, you can just drop your question in the comments on Patreon. And you will have until Tuesday the 16th of May to submit those questions either via email or in the comments on Patreon. So let's get into the story of the boy they tried to hide. One of the things that has always interested me about the story of the silent twins is that there were so many professionals involved with the twins' case. The story is not just hearsay passed down through the words of gossiping neighbours. No, these girls came into contact with teachers, police officers, medical professionals, social workers and healthcare workers throughout their lives. So their story, even though it isn't paranormal, is a well-documented tale that sometimes seems to defy logic and social norms. I often think that I would love to sit down with the professionals involved in cases like this and find out what they really thought about the case. I myself have sat in serious rooms with all sorts of professionals where someone in desperation has tentatively asked but what if this child is possessed? When all other avenues seem to have been explored and exhausted and the situation is no nearer being understood or fixed. When we can't logically understand the situation or the mechanisms of the human psyche, perhaps we are left with questions and answers that seem illogical. Shane Dunphy worked in social care, protecting our most vulnerable children. Social workers see the full spectrum of humanity and often social workers will be the people that truly understand the depths of human desperation but how many social workers have seen things or experienced things that have defied any explanation? In those rare moments where there is no natural explanation, is it logical to turn to the unnatural or even the supernatural? This is Shane's story. People tell me that you used to work with troubled kids she wouldn't make eye contact with him and Shane knew that there was a story bubbling below the surface waiting to burst out. Shane had stopped working as a social worker. It was a harrowing job and while there were tiny pockets of victory that were rewarding, it was fundamentally hard work. He was now working in a school, teaching pupils with special educational needs and the woman sitting across from him looking deeply uncomfortable was a woman named Mrs Finnegan. Her child, Angus, was in Shane's class and he had met him for the first time today. He seemed fine enough. It was Shane's first time meeting him that day as it was a new term and a new class so he hadn't really had the time to dig below the surface of any of the pupils. They were still sizing each other up. "'It's not Angus,' she said hurriedly. "'It's his brother, Gregory.' Shane was living at the end of the world. A small village in the west of Ireland where the next stop was America. It was rural and remote and beautiful in its wildness. Mrs. Finnegan had begged him not to tell social services about what was happening for Gregory. And Shane was naturally primed for a story of something harrowing. But actually what he heard, what she told him, seemed, on the surface at least, to be more straightforward. Gregory was eight years old and he kept sneaking out of the house. Shane expected her to say that Gregory was sneaking out to the village or to a friend's house, but no. He snuck out into the woods. He would go during the day and during the night. The Finnegan's house sat right on the edge of a dense woodland that stretched for miles and Gregory would disappear from the house silent as a shadow and slip off into the woods for hours on end. Sometimes he would return of his own accord and sometimes Mrs Finnegan would have to venture out into the woods to get him. No matter what she did, he still managed to get out. She locked doors and windows and hid the keys in increasingly elaborate locations and he would still find the keys every time and make his way out into the darkness. She would often go into his room in the middle of the night to find his bed empty and Gregory gone. He was always in the woods. Here's the thing with children who are running away. There are generally two possible reasons they are running away from something or they are running away to something. There didn't seem to be anything at home that would warrant Gregory running away and Mrs. Finnegan had no reason to believe that Gregory was meeting someone in the woods. But there was still, of course, the very real fear that Gregory was being lured into the woods. It was Angus who spilled the first secret... Shane had gotten to know Angus. He was a sweet 13-year-old boy who had some learning difficulties and was not the biggest fan of school. He explained to Shane that because his family lived so remotely, that him and Gregory spent most of their time together playing. Except for at night time, when Gregory played with Thomas. When Shane heard the mention of another little boy, he bristled. Who is Thomas? Mrs. Finnegan definitely said that Gregory hadn't mentioned any other friends, so who was Thomas? Gregory goes out at night time, you see, and it really upsets Ma, so I asked him why he does be sneaking out, and he said he's meeting his friend Thomas. But I don't know who Thomas is, and Gregory never wakes me up to come too, so I think he's making it up. Shane decided to pay a visit to the Finnegan's home. He was concerned now. Was it possible that Gregory was sneaking out at night with another child, Thomas, and if so, why? The Finnegan's cottage was tucked away in hills and woodlands and it took some time to find it, but when Mrs Finnegan opened the door she invited Shane in warmly, although it was clear that she was worried. Her face was drawn and she had dark circles under her eyes. Gregory was sitting at the kitchen table reading a Power Rangers magazine and was reluctant to engage in any conversation with Shane. So Shane resorted to simple questions that only required a nod or a shake of the head, through which he was able to ask Gregory questions. When they got to the questions about Thomas, Gregory indicated that he had not met Thomas in school, nor was Thomas a neighbour, he hadn't met Thomas at mass or playing sports, nor at the beach, And, as was Shane's biggest worry, he hadn't met him on the internet. Exhausting all the options of where an eight-year-old child could meet someone, Shane simply said, Gregory, where did you meet him? I heard him. I heard him crying. In Gregory's small bedroom, Shane and Gregory sat as he relayed the story of how he had met Thomas. It had been very late at night, and Gregory knew that he had been in bed and asleep for a long time. He awoke to the sound of someone crying, and his heart hammered in his chest. He worried that his mom was crying, but as he strained his ears to listen, he realized that it wasn't his mom crying, because it was someone younger, someone smaller. It wasn't Angus either, at least he didn't think it was. And besides, the sound was coming from outside. He folded his duvet back and slipped out of the bed, his feet padding noiselessly across the carpet to the window. He looked out into the darkness and into the tree line and could see nothing. He could hear the crying still, but couldn't see where it was coming from until his eyes slid over a figure in the trees. It was a little boy, a little boy who was looking up into the window and crying. And when they made eye contact, the little boy gestured at Gregory to come to him. And because he looked so sad and so lonely, Gregory snuck out of his bedroom, out the back door, and disappeared into the woods. Tell me about this boy Thomas then. Shane had said. Where does he live? In the woods. Okay, but what about his parents? He doesn't have a mammy and daddy. Okay, so does he live with his grandparents or uncle and aunts, maybe? No. He lives on his own in the woods. He doesn't got no mom and dad and he doesn't live with anyone. He doesn't go to school and he wears really old clothes and... And I don't think he has any more clothes and his hair is black and he has a pale face and he's just really lonely because it's just him in the woods. So now I'm his best friend. Shane was now confident that he understood what was happening with Gregory. Thomas was clearly an imaginary friend and he told Mrs. Finnegan as much. He recommended to keep locking doors and windows and to ensure that there was a baby monitor in Gregory's room to get him involved in some clubs and sports and most importantly to remember that imaginary friends are common and that children grow out of them eventually two weeks later Shane received a call from Sergeant Harry Doyle who requested that he come to the Garda station it was to do with Gregory Finnegan and they needed to speak in person shit Shane thought he made his way to the station terrified of what he was about to hear Two nights previously, Mrs. Finnegan had checked in on Gregory and he was gone. She woke Angus and they checked the house and the woods and there was no sign of Gregory. Panicked, she phoned the guards, who also did a search of the woods and found nothing. No sign of Gregory. They searched until morning came and still... Nothing. Mrs. Finnegan was going out of her wits at this point, terrified for her child who she instinctively knew was out in those woods overnight. Eventually they found Gregory perfectly fine and in a section of woods five miles from his house. When he was asked why he was out in the woods, Gregory said that he was playing hide and seek with Thomas. The guards searched and there was no sign of another child. The sergeant brought Gregory home and asked him to retrace what had happened. He said that Thomas had come and knocked on his window, but that he couldn't open the window, so he had managed to unlock the back door and go out that way. And then he went to the woods and played hide-and-seek with Thomas. The story was simple, and the sergeant believed Gregory. And as they walked around the house... The sergeant noticed something. There were footprints leading up to the ground below Gregory's window. Gregory's window was upstairs, but on the ground below, there were small footprints. They had crinkled grooves as though the maker were wearing trainers. Small trainers, child sized trainers. But as the sergeant looked at Gregory's feet and the footprints that were in the ground beneath the window, he realized something. They weren't the same size. And at that moment, Shane inhaled sharply Jesus Christ! Thomas is real! There were no records for a missing child that matched the description of Thomas and social services confirmed that no child in the area that they were aware of matched that description. But either way, this child was out in the woods at night and needed to be found as soon as possible. Shane didn't know what to think, and actually it wasn't his job to investigate. But he couldn't get Gregory and Thomas out of his mind. In the pub one evening, he consulted his friend George Taylor, a local school principal, and someone who Shane deeply trusted. As George listened to the tale of Gregory and Thomas, he quietly sipped a pint and seemed to be trying to work it all out in his head. When Shane had finished the tale right up to the footprints in the wet ground, George cleared his throat. throat) Well, sounds like you've got yourself caught up right in the middle of a local legend. What are you talking about? What legend? asked Shane. And as the evening drew in around them and the shadows lengthened, George told him a story. The local legend went that in the 1970s and 1980s there was a girl in the local area that had been the victim of incest. Her father had abused her for years and eventually she became pregnant with his child. He was afraid of retribution. So hid her away in a shack deep in the woods where he would deliver her packages of food and necessities every few days. Eventually she would give birth to a healthy baby boy. She gave birth alone, deep in the wilds of the forest. And she loved that child but the visits from her father began to wane. Days would pass and she would not see him and her and her son grew hungrier and hungrier. They wandered through the woods searching for food and eventually she was found, half dead from the cold and the hunger, with the dead body of her child cradled in her arms. People began to report strange things from the woods. The sound of a child crying echoing through the trees. Hikers would catch a glimpse of a child darting through the trees. And the footprints of a child had been found deep in the woods where no child should be alone. Footprints that appeared onto pathways and disappeared into the thicket where no one would be able to pass through. The locals believe that there were strange things in those woods. Things that were best left alone. What is the A-Team? Gregory asked Shane idly. They established that the A-Team was an 80s TV show, an action show. And Shane asked Gregory why he had asked about it. And he said, "Oh, that's because it's Thomas's favorite TV show. He doesn't play an Xbox or a PlayStation though. He plays a game called Manic Miner on his um on his on his Specky." Shane studied Gregory across the table. He had the earnestness of a child that was absolutely telling the truth. Gregory, when you say Specky, do you mean a Spectrum? A ZX Spectrum? Gregory nodded. I've never seen one of them, but that's what Thomas says he plays. He plays Manic Minor and School Days. Shane was shocked. These were games from a bygone era, the ZX spectrum was seriously old school and yet Gregory was telling Shane that it and the A-team were Thomas's favourite. It was clear that Gregory himself had no experience of these things and that someone, whoever it was, had told him all about them. Your mum says you haven't been getting out of the house at night time anymore, Gregory, is that right? Again, Gregory nodded, engrossed in an ice cream sundae. I can't get out anymore because my mommy put new locks on the door and I can't work the keys, but that's okay. There was a slight pause as Gregory ate a spoonful of ice cream. That's okay, because Thomas just comes into my bedroom now. Shane's blood ran cold, but he tried to maintain his composure. Okay, so how does Thomas get in then? Gregory shrugged. I don't know. I just wake up and he's there. Shane immediately went to Mrs. Finnegan who assured him that there was no way anyone was getting into the house at night time. But that she had noticed something odd. Gregory was talking to himself at night time. She had gotten a baby monitor and could hear him up in the night and chitter-chattering away to himself. But any time she checked on him, he was definitely alone and generally asleep. But Mrs. Finnegan rang Shane very late one evening, begging him to come to the house. She didn't know who to call and she was frightened. Something was wrong, she had said. Shane needed to hear something. He asked her if he should call the police, but she assured him that this wasn't a police matter, that he just needed to get there. He just needed to hear it. When he arrived at the Finnegan's house, Mrs. Finnegan was sitting at the kitchen table with an old tape recorder in front of her. Press play, she said. As the tape crackled into life, Shane could hear Gregory's voice through the static. He sounded upset and scared. I don't want to go out the window. But through the static came a reply. Another child's voice slightly lower in register, signifying that he was perhaps older. The voice was quieter than Gregory's, but unmistakably there. I want to play in the trees. But Mammy doesn't want me to go out no more. She says it's dangerous. This room is too small. Outside, you can hide and I can look for you. The two voices of the small children argued back and forth. Gregory was clearly upset and refusing to play outside, while the other child was angry, wanting him to come out into the woods. Mrs. Finnegan was pale. The tape continued until there was a bang and a rustle and Mrs. Finnegan's voice came through on the tape recorder. Gregory? Gregory, are you okay? Gregory, who are you speaking to? She explained to Shane that she had heard the exchange on the baby monitor and then recorded it onto the tape recorder because she didn't know what else to do with it. When she burst into Gregory's room after hearing the voices on the monitor he was sitting on his bed in his pyjamas looking upset. The window was wide open and on the floor of the bedroom was fresh dirt and pine leaves as though someone had come in from outside. She had looked out the window and faintly in the distance she could have sworn That she could see the shadow of a small boy disappearing into the tree line. Shane, with the help of George Taylor, did some digging and uncovered a newspaper story from the 1980s. A woman living locally in the area had approached a priest to inform him that her son had gone missing, and she was concerned that he had been kidnapped and taken to Australia by his father. The story was printed in the newspaper as a means of finding any information about the boy or his father. The woman was a local recluse named Winifred Tobin. And the boy? Her son, Thomas Tobin. A few weeks later, another article was published retracting the claims of kidnap from the previous article and stating that there never was a Thomas Tobin and that Winifred Tobin had since died in tragic circumstances. The parish priest went on record to say that the community had failed a vulnerable woman. A picture was published of her living room. And in the picture, blurry as it might be, there on the table was a ZX Spectrum. And the house. The house was only about a mile from where the Finnegan's lived now. And if Winifred Tobin were alive, she would have been their closest neighbour. Father Senan Malone was still alive and was living locally in a nursing home. As he had been quoted in the newspaper articles, Shane went to visit him. And after Shane had told him the story of Gregory Finnegan and his imaginary friend Thomas, Father Malone stopped and thought for a while, while drawing on an ornate pipe. Are you trying to tell me that this child, Thomas, is some sort of ghost or changeling? No, father, I'm not. But I think this Thomas is somehow related to Winifred Tobin. Ah, said Father Malone. But that all depends on whether Winifred Tobin actually had a son. When I first met her, she told me she had a son and there was loud music coming from a bedroom in the house. She told me that her son was in there on his computer and she laughed about how he was stuck to it most days. I would visit her often and though she would talk about Thomas, I never actually met him. Once when we were sitting in the garden, she said, "Oh, there's Thomas off to play in the woods." And I thought I saw the a glimpse of a boy, just a glimpse disappearing into the trees another time I was leaving the house and I thought I heard a a child's voice say goodbye father but I couldn't be sure Winifred was clearly an unwell woman and this was a time when we just didn't know as much about mental health she had told me that she wanted to kill her son and herself she told me that she believed her son was evil like his father she had told me all about the child's father that he was abusive and violent one day I went to see her and she emerged from the woods sort of unsteady and she had blood on her dress and she told me she had fallen in the woods and cut herself on something it was only a few days later that she came to me to say that the boy had been taken by his father and I was immediately concerned and then she took her own life I went to the guards and I I told them everything but they didn't believe there was actually a child and they weren't really concerned and then local people began to gossip and that there was a child and she had killed him and gone mad and killed herself of course after she had died people came out of the woodwork swearing up and down they had seen the child once or caught a glimpse of him through the window or in the woods And but I don't know Then, of course, the the legends started, the rumours and the story changed and all of a sudden it was a story of incest and and a woman and her child being locked away in the woods. But I suppose that's what people do when they feel bad about something. I suppose the local people needed to invent a story because they felt bad about leaving a vulnerable woman on her own, letting her fend for herself. But I don't know. I've never known the truth of what happened in that house. It was a rock through Gregory's window that was enough to solidify in Shane's mind that this was no ghost or changeling. Ghosts don't throw rocks. And he suspected there was a real child involved with this situation. Perhaps a relative of Winifred Tobin? Perhaps a local child? Either way, a rock had been thrown through the window of Gregory's bedroom in the middle of the night. Angus, Gregory and Mrs Finnegan had all been asleep when it happened and the rock had categorically come from outside the house. Knowing now that it had to be someone very much living, Shane decided to sit in his car and do a stakeout of sorts, to catch the intruder in the act, and end this fiasco once and for all. He sat outside the house in his car with his dog Millie, and was primed to be able to see both the woods and Gregory's window. Long into the wait, Millie began to shuffle in the back seat, And then the shuffling was accompanied by her whining softly, clearly distressed by something. Shane scanned the tree line, and then he saw it. A shape, a shadow, moving from the tree line towards the house. There were no discernible features to the shadow, but it was definitely humanoid, and definitely the shape and size of a small boy. It moved fluidly over the terrain smoothly and not missing a beat. It seemed to pass through the fence at the end of the garden with ease, not having to climb over the rickety thing. Shane blinked and rubbed his eyes to be sure that what he was seeing was there, and it was there, this black little shadow of a boy slipping silently through the garden. Millie continued to whine. The little boy seemed to stop at the house below Gregory's window, And then, with seemingly no effort, he began to climb up the drain to the bedroom. Shane opened the car door and ran to the house. He ran until he reached the ground beneath Gregory's window and he shone his flashlight on the little boy climbing. Hey! he shouted. Hey, what are you doing? A little pale face was caught in the light as it turned around to look at him. The face was white and the eyes were dark and it was unmistakably a little boy, but in the blink of an eye, it was gone. Shane immediately presumed the little boy had climbed in through Gregory's window. The glass panel was still missing after the rock incident, and Gregory had been sleeping in his mam's bed. Shane led himself into the house with the key that Mrs Finnegan had given him, and in what seemed like two steps, he was up the stairs and in Gregory's bedroom gregory's empty bedroom that still had a board over the window where the pane was missing of course the board was still there of course the boy hadn't come into the room without moving it shane cursed his own stupidity but if the boy hadn't come through the window where had he gone Still none the wiser, Shane had left the Finnegans when morning broke with a million questions racing through his mind. Something inexplicable was happening to Gregory. But how could a little boy be wandering the woods at night time and no one seemed to know who he was or where he had come from? Was he linked to Winifred Tobin? And though he wouldn't admit it at the time, there was a lingering feeling that maybe in a tiny realm of possibility... Maybe this boy was Thomas Tobin. On the edge of the woods, Shane stopped his car and let Millie out for a few minutes. As he stood there leaning against the car, he was approached by a small boy with flaming red hair. The boy was from a traveller encampment a little bit further up the road. And the boy asked if he could pet Millie and Shane said, of course you can. On a whim, he asked the boy if they had had anyone disturbed their camp or had seen anyone in the woods the boy with barely a second thought on the matter told Shane that they were leaving the camp because the woods were bad woods their dogs and horses were unsettled and all of the children had seen a boy in the woods the boy would come to their trailers at night time and try and lure the children out into the woods but they were all scared of him Their granny, he said, had tried to say prayers to banish him, but it didn't work. And he kept coming back. The boy's name, he said, was Thomas. He's gone! He's gone! Mrs. Finnegan was screaming down the phone. He's gone. I saw him going, but I couldn't catch him. They moved so fast. There was a boy. He was with a boy. Oh, God, Shane, you have to help me find him. The phone call had come in the morning. Mrs. Finnegan had woken up to Gregory gone. Shane called his friend, George Taylor, and they headed out into the woods to find Gregory. They searched and searched, and at midday they stumbled into a small clearing, and there Leaning against the wall of a ramshackle old hut was Gregory, inexplicably asleep. Shane ran to him and shook him lightly. He opened his eyes and immediately asked, Where is Thomas? And then it began. The wailing, screaming sound of a child crying it seemed to swell in the air around them and came from everywhere and nowhere all at once it was loud and unnatural and there was no way that a human child could make that sound not that loudly but it was somehow human and then Shane saw him a small boy standing a distance away among the trees wearing jeans and an anorak His face was deathly pale and his eyes were large and black. His face was blank and impassive as he watched Shane, George and Gregory. Then the tiniest change. A look passed over the child's face, something akin to shock or surprise, almost imperceptible. And as though an invisible rope had been tied around his waist, he lurched backwards into the woods, pulled into its depths, and in an instant he was gone. The crying stopped, and a thick, heavy silence replaced it. George and Shane would talk about what they had seen. They had both seen and heard the same things in those woods, but could never truly make sense of it but they knew that they needed to do something. With the help of Father Malone and the Finnegan family, they returned to the woods, lit candles and said prayers in order to attempt to guide the restless spirit of Thomas to a better place. After the prayers in the woods, Gregory was never visited by Thomas again. It is of course difficult to know why that happened. Maybe the prayers were enough to appease the restless spirit of Thomas. Or maybe all he wanted was attention. Maybe he just needed recognition. Maybe he just needed to be seen. I am sure that you, like me, have a million questions about this story. So like I said, the story came from a book called The Boy They Tried to Hide by Shane Dunphy. And I reached out to Shane and he has very graciously agreed to come on the podcast. And I'm going to record an interview with him on Wednesday... So if you have a question for Shane, it needs to be sent in by Tuesday, the 16th of May, 2023. So if you're listening to this in the future, I'm sorry, it's too late. Tuesday, the 16th, your questions need to be sent in to ghost stories Podcast at gmail.com. And if you are on Patreon, just drop the question into the comments of this episode. And just to let you know, if you do decide to buy the book, The Boy They Tried to Hide. um, So I bought it on the recommendation of... Adam from Weekly Creep. And I actually texted him while I was reading it. And I was like, listen, have I got the right book? Like, what's going on here? I'm reading a totally different story the story is told within the context of three different stories about three different events in Shane's life. So there are two other stories that are about his time as a social worker or at least incidents that occurred following his time as a social worker and then obviously the story of Gregory as well is within it. So there's sort of three different stories within the one book and I kind of got the ghost story bit and i was like stuck into it and i was reading 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 and writing and kind of really diligently reading the book writing the story adding bits to it and i hadn't realized how involved i was with the story until the back gate to my house slammed shut in the wind and i'm not joking it fucking lifted me out of it i thought i was going to drop dead with the fright because i was so engrossed in this story and I think if you're listening to this story in a modern context, you might have some questions about the story of Winifred Tobin. And as somebody who grew up in pretty rural Ireland, there are a lot of things about that story that ring true. So first of all, the story, the original version of the story we get is this story about incest, this story about a woman who is kind of carted off into the woods by her father, who he has gotten her pregnant, this his own daughter, pretty horrific. It's a story of abuse. She's hidden away and then the father abandons her and she dies. And in that version of the story we see the father becoming the baddie. He is the big bad wolf. He is an abuser. He abuses this woman, locks her away and as a result of his neglect this woman and her child end up dying. And then we get Another version of the story, which is probably more akin to the truth. So in the newspapers back in the 1980s in the local area, a story is printed about a woman, Winifred Tobin, whose son Thomas has been kidnapped by his father. And she has told the local priest that the father was abusive. He was sexually depraved and he was very violent towards her. So she is terrified that this man has taken her son and as a result the priest goes to the newspapers and they print this story in the newspapers about this boy being kidnapped and then later the story is retracted and the, uh, the next newspaper report says there never was a child this woman has since um, died tragically which read as has taken her own life and she is somebody that we have failed as a society so this priest father sent him alone when he is visited by Shane Dunphy originally. He says, yeah, there was this woman I used to go and see her and she, you know, claimed to have a son. I never saw him. I felt like I kind of caught glimpses of him or maybe heard him. And one day, you know, a little shadow passed by the window and she said, oh, there's Thomas off out to play, you know, those kind of things. And he then comes to visit Shane again and he says, I actually wasn't entirely truthful this woman was very mentally unwell and she used to talk talk about her son Thomas. She used to say that she wanted to kill him because he was evil like his father, etc, etc. Then one day I saw her coming out of the woods covered in blood. And after the whole debacle with the newspapers, he said that he had gone to the police and said, look, this is everything I know. And the police said, look, she was the local madwoman. There never was a child. Like, we're not investigating... There's no point. We'll have a quick look in the woods but I'm telling you there's nothing there and that was it. And there's a couple of bits about this story that I think might raise eyebrows for people listening to it in a modern context. Firstly, that a woman would hide her child for that long or be able to hide her child for that long. In rural Ireland at that time in the 1970s or 1980s, having a child out of wedlock was probably the worst thing that you could do as a woman and having a child out of wedlock would often mean That if the local community found out about it, if the local clergy found out about it, it is likely that child would be taken away from you and you would be locked away in a Magdalene laundry for the rest of your life. So if the child was real, it is very possible that she could and would have hidden that child. It is also a stark reality that people who had mental health issues or people who were perceived as different for any reason were often ostracised by communities, particularly rural communities, who would have the attitude of, it's not my business, leave well enough alone, she does her own thing, we do our own thing, that's it. And what it sounds like is that this woman potentially did murder her own child in the woods and perhaps she was incredibly mentally unwell, perhaps she did murder her son in the woods and then believed that her son had been taken by this evil, abusive father. And stories like that sort of exist all over the world from that era, which is really, really sad, where things happened, you know, people got pregnant out of wedlock, they hid children, or as it was at the time in Ireland, the clergy got involved and children were sometimes taken away, were often taken away from women, mental illness wasn't remotely understood, people were often ostracised and othered because they weren't understood by what was deemed as normal society or they didn't fit in to what was deemed as normal society. A lot of bad shit went on, basically. But is it possible that the spirit of that child, Thomas, was roaming the woods all that time looking for other children to play with, being really lonely? It's a pretty wild story, but one that, according to Shane Dunphy, absolutely happened. So like I said, if you've got a question or a theory or a thought about this story please do email it to com. Obviously, a lot of questions might be similar and it is very unlikely that I'll be able to get to every single question that is sent in. But if you have a question, do please send it in. And hopefully that interview episode with Shane Dunphy will be out next week. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. Remember, if you want to send in your story, you can do so by emailing it to reallifeghoststoriespodcast at gmail.com. You can also check out the website reallifeghoststoriespodcast.com. And if you are desperate for some extra content, you can subscribe to Patreon. That is patreon.com forward slash reallifeghoststories where for $5 a month or $2 a month, you get access to heaps of extra content as well as every single main and mini episode completely ad-free. And on that note, I shall see you next time.